Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking together at the last portion of Peter's sermon, verses 33 to 41. And before we read the Word of God, let's ask our God to come and give us help to understand. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come as needy, dependent people who say simply, Speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Lord, would You give us hearts that receive Your truth, and would You sanctify us by what You teach us in Your Word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scripture? Again, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 33. Being therefore exalted, speaking of Christ here, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, thus far, God's word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, last week in part two of Peter's sermon, we saw Peter move from explaining that the tongues phenomenon was a sign of the last days to speaking about God's redemptive plan crowned in the last days, that is, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that the Father had attested Jesus with mighty works, wonders, and signs, indicating that this is His man divinely commissioned to work salvation. He was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. However, that kingdom, or more specifically, the king of the kingdom, Jesus, was crucified and killed by the Jews. Now this horrible thing, this death, was the plan of God, though not excusing the sin of these men. They are guilty of killing the Christ. But evil could not thwart God's purpose. For the Father had determined to save sinners through Jesus, and specifically to save sinners through the means of Jesus' death. So while wicked men sought to destroy Jesus, the Father delighted in Him and raised Him up. Indeed, this was simply the fulfillment of His Word. Psalm 16, which Peter mentioned, His Holy One would not see corruption in the grave. And the covenant 
that God made with David, his oath in 2 Samuel 7, there would be a king, a forever king from David's line. The death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter is careful to say, was predicted in the Old Testament. And as Jesus is delivered from the grave, it is evident that all of God's promises are coming to pass. Well, to press this to his hearers, Peter now moves past the resurrection, adding that we are witnesses of this. This is no myth, no scam. Jesus lives, but Peter wants you to see now the exaltation or the lordship of Jesus Christ and to press the implications to hearts. Well, we're going to look at three things as we make our way through this portion of God's Word. So see with me to start with the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in 33 to 36 of our text. Peter moves now from the fact of the resurrection, which happened some seven weeks back, to the recent ascension and enthronement of Jesus. Look at verse 33 in particular. Being therefore exalted, he's talking about Christ coming to the throne, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, several incredibly significant things are said here about Jesus. First, Jesus is the prevailing sovereign, clothed with power at God's right hand. That means Jesus is God and is equal with the Father in power and glory. While Jesus was the Son of God or is the Son of God and He entered this world in a lowly state, He took flesh, He was born in poverty and obscurity, He had, as Isaiah said, no form or majesty that we should be attracted to Him. He didn't look like a king. Nothing about His physique or His immediate family circumstances screamed, this is a great person. He Himself was the eternal Word in the very form of God, but He came in lowliness. His divine glory was veiled. But the humiliation that had attended to Him is now over. The suffering, the mockery, the apparent rejection of heaven itself as He hung on the cross, all of that is done. For the Father has exalted Him. The Father is pleased with the obedience of His Son and He's given our Savior the fullness of His messianic rights. Jesus will declare in Matthew 28, after the resurrection significantly, all authority in heaven and earth belong or have been given to me. Now inherently, all authority and power already belong to Jesus, but He denied His rights for our salvation. But now, having accomplished our salvation, the Father lavishes these things on His Son. Therefore, Jesus takes the throne. He has supremacy over all created powers. He flashed this to us in His calming of the storm and His casting out of demons. But now this is His settled position as the conqueror of Satan, sin, and death. To be at the right hand of God means Jesus holds a post of honor filled with divine power. The right hand is a figure of speech in Scripture for active power. And that's a place, the Father's right hand, where only deity can dwell. 
Only God can be at God's very right hand, the very instrument of His authority. But it belongs to Jesus. And having come into the fullness of His authority, Christ, Peter tells us secondly, receives the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Father of the Spirit. Now that may make you wonder, does that mean Jesus didn't have the Spirit before this? Well, no, clearly He did. Clearly, He was conceived by the Spirit's power. He was equipped for ministry by the Spirit's power at His baptism. He comes preaching and doing miracles full of the Spirit's power. But now He shares with the Father heavenly rule. The Father had promised His Son in Psalm 2, Ask of Me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You remember what he'll do. He'll smash opponents with a rod of iron. Well, now is that time. King Jesus, as he pours out his spirit, is bringing about the purposes of God to see the blessing of Abraham to the nations go out. Jesus is ruling and he's bringing his kingdom blessings through the spirit at this point forward. Now, Joel 2 had prophesied that the Father would pour out the Spirit. But now Peter says, Jesus has poured out the Spirit. And what does it mean? It means there's equality between the Father and the Son. It means Jesus, as King, is now subduing souls, snatching sinners into His kingdom. Because who is Jesus? He is Lord. Peter is telling his listeners, what you're seeing right now is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work. And then he proves from the Old Testament, you should have expected this. David, who clearly didn't ascend to heaven, said, verse 33, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now if you remember, Jesus had once put this psalm to the scribes and he was asking them and I think he's really I mean he's pressing the truth but he's also being sarcastic because they're not taking him seriously how is it that the Messiah can be David's son if David calls him Lord Adonai which means master of all things you see Jesus was blasting their false understanding that the Messiah somehow was only a man and not God himself He's saying, your scripture doesn't say that. You forgot to read the Bible. Of course, they've read it. But he's getting after them. And Peter presses that significance now. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you see how Peter's still getting in their grill about their sin? The exalted King, the Messiah, co-equal with God, is Jesus. And what did you do? You crucified Him. Yes, He was among you in a humble estate. He didn't resist going to the cursed tree, though He could have called twelve legions of angels to rise to His defense. But that was not the Father's plan. Jesus died in apparent rejection. He was laid in the grave. But the Father has accepted His work. And He's gave Him a position that belongs to Him as Lord over all. He didn't become Lord at His resurrection. He was always Lord. Gabriel said at conception with Jesus that He is Lord 
Elizabeth, when Mary comes to meet her, and she's got baby Jesus in the womb, and Elizabeth has baby John in the womb, and John wept at the presence of the Messiah entering, and Elizabeth says, how blessed I am that the the mother of my Lord should visit me. Shepherds are worshiping Jesus at His birth. The Magi are doing it months later. Demons are declaring who He is. But brethren, now at the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, Jesus has entered into a new stage of His Lordship. He is Son of God with power. He will exercise His rule in a worldwide display of the Gospel going out by the power of the Spirit. And all this has serious implications. If Jesus is King, if Jesus is exercising His rule and enemies are to be made a what for His feet? A footstool. To stand against King Jesus is the height of folly. You will be crushed. There's a little bit of an echo to Joshua chapter 10 when the uh, southern coalition of Canaanite kings, Amorite kings, they come to fight against Joshua and Israel. And the kings are getting whipped on the battlefield, so they run and they hide in a cave. And Joshua says, put a stone over the cave. And then after the battle is over, he comes and he has the cave opened. And he has the troops of Israel come and all put their feet on the necks of those kings. What a scene that would have been like. Can you imagine being that king? (laughs) Every Israelite booted warrior is coming to stand on your neck. And then what does Joshua do to them? He kills them. If you don't bow to the king... If you don't serve Christ, flee your sin, and give your life to Jesus, then you're opposing divine power. And how do you think that's going to go for you? Go ask Pharaoh. Oh, you can't. He's in hell. You'll be destroyed. This is very significant. But think about the significance for the believer. For those who are already believing, for the 120 people who trust in Christ, who are looking at mockers and murderers right now, what do they know about King Jesus? They know that no enemy will prevail over Him and it doesn't matter how dark the scene appears because nothing can be darker than the death of the Savior on Golgotha. But Jesus has overthrown sin's dominion, broken the bars of death, thrown down the serpent of old. No one can resist Him. So if we are on Jesus' side, brethren, never shall we be overcome. The church will never perish. We will be vilified and victimized. But we have victory in Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to sing that old Calvinistic gospel hymn, Victory in Jesus. That's what we have. His kingdom will be asserted and every threat will be squashed. There will be days where it seems like all threats are going to win. But it won't. And you are assured of it because of the resurrection and enthronement of Christ. You've got to get your eyes on the heavenly reality. We shall triumph. But what does it mean for these people who are listening to Peter's sermon? Can there be a greater sin than killing the Savior? They looked at God in the flesh and they lashed out at Him. What's going to become of them? Well, it depends upon their response. So secondly, we see the striking of hearts. Now, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Some of the listeners are now, it seems, intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. But more than that, they are cut to the heart with conviction. 
They don't merely acknowledge nobody's perfect, we're, sin, we're sinners. No, they see their specific sin. They crucified the Lord's Christ. And that is a heinous offense. Well, beloved, this too is a sign of the Spirit's work. He is the Spirit of conviction. He brings awareness of sin and grief for sin. And this should be a clue, by the way, that conviction is a gift. Prior to this, these people didn't understand their sin. But now they see it. They were blind, but their eyes are being opened. Has this happened for us? Yes, it's true. We were not there in the first century in Jerusalem shouting out for Jesus' crucifixion. But we have sinned against God's Christ. We have disregarded His rule. There have been times where we've acted like we are God and He isn't. We've dismissed His sovereign power as though God is dead because we're going to determine to rule ourselves and go our own way. Do we see that we've spurned the King? That we've ignored His law? And then knowing that He came to lay down His life for hostile people, do we grieve our rebellion at the King of love? Are our hearts broken? These people's hearts are broken. You know, Reformed people don't like to talk about emotions very much. We're, we're doing a whole Sunday school class about it. I hope you'll listen if you're not going. But we're often accused of not talking about our emotions. We want to be intellectually superior and understand things. If Jesus doesn't cut you to the heart, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't, if you don't grieve your sin, if there's not an emotional response to your sin, then you haven't been awakened. This is what the Spirit does. He gives us a knowledge of sin and a mourning for sin. But mourning for sin isn't enough to save you. So feeling their condemnation, what do they do? They, speak, they seek spiritual guidance. It's interesting, they appeal, the, the listeners appeal to Peter and the others, brothers, verse 29. I don't, I don't think that they've ever called the apostles brothers. They looked at them as a bunch of quacks, but now their view is different. They're receiving the word of Peter as the word of God, and they're looking to him and the others to guide their souls. Is there any hope for us? If you've committed the most heinous sin imaginable by crucifying God's Christ, you got to be beyond the pale, right? Past the point of pardon. One might think so, because earthly kings have no patience for rebels. But our God is different. There's forgiveness with Him that He may be feared. What an amazing thing here. That the Lord is addressing Christ killers and saying there's a way for you to be forgiven. That's incredible. What grace. If you're here this morning and you've got sin, it's not as great as being a Christ killer. But the Lord is willing to pardon those who do some things. Look at the text. There's an exhortation and a promise. Exhortation is first in two parts. Repent. We don't get the sense of uh, the directness because in, in Greek and Hebrew, the verb is included. Sorry, the, the subject is included in the verb. Y'all repent. It's very direct. And the call for repentance has been a seminal part of the preaching of the prophets. We can think of John the Baptist. What did he come preaching? Repentance. What did Jesus come preaching? Repentance. What did Jesus send the apostles to preach? Repentance. 
Notice there's no new message. It's the same message. This is what God's, uh, this is what the people who fear the Lord must do. They must repent. Sinners must turn from sin. What is repentance? We need to see our sin, feel the weight of our sin, and flee our sin in submission to Jesus as King. Repentance is not merely knowing you've done something wrong. Repentance is not only feeling bad and hating the consequence. Repentance is recognizing the danger and foulness of your sin in your mind and your heart, hating it, forsaking it, and going to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So the sinner runs to Jesus, leaves sin in the dust, and determines to walk after Jesus Christ. Repentance is not having good intentions. You all know the famous saying about good intentions, right? I don't have to say it. Repentance is the pursuit of Christ as you put off sin. And repentance bears fruit. It's the evidence of going a new way. That plays out here. The second part of the exhortation, repent, Peter says, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Baptism doesn't bring forgiveness. Water can't cleanse the soul. But receiving this baptism proclaims that the sinner looks to Christ for salvation. Jesus is owned as Lord so that these repentant people will now follow Christ as Lord. That's what the sin-sick soul must do, beloved. Sinners seek Christ as Savior and then they submit to Jesus as Lord. There's no separation between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. You flee sin to the Savior and you submit to Christ as the King. You express your loyalty to Him and it's evidenced here in baptism. Acknowledging only Jesus can wash me. Only Jesus can guide me. Only Jesus will have my allegiance. Jesus makes me new. Jesus has to raise me from spiritual death and give me life. And while repentance is our responsibility, it is yet God's gift, much like faith. He must open our eyes. Acts 11 is going to elaborate on this. Then Peter will say, well, Luke will say, the, the, the Lord has given the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. He has to give it. By the Spirit, God has to give us a new perspective about sin, about Christ, about ourselves, that we would run to the Lord. Are we here this morning found seeking the Lord for mercy? Running to Him in repentance. Knowing that He can make the foulest clean. And let it be remembered that while repentance is an entry requirement to the kingdom of Jesus, repentance is also a pattern of life. If Jesus is our Lord, our love affair with sin must stop. So every discovery the heart makes of sin leads to repentance. Is that how it is with us? You're kidding yourself. If you some years ago walked down an aisle or raised a hand or did some, signed a card or did something and said that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and then you haven't paid any attention to how He tells you to live. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. It's a lifelong thing. 
turning from sin constantly. And if you turn from sin, if you yoke yourself to Jesus, then Peter says, verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's already implied, what will the Spirit bring you? He will bring you forgiveness as you turn to the Lord. He will apply the cleansing of Christ to your soul. Now, does this mean that every baptized person is automatically given the Spirit? You probably already know the answer to that. But Acts chapter 8 is going to make it clear to us that baptism isn't a magic potion to secure the Spirit. There will be a man who is baptized, who Peter will say is yet in the gall of iniquity. Baptism is a sign of the Spirit poured out. But baptism doesn't secure the Spirit by applying water as though man could secure the Spirit. Christ alone can give the Spirit. He's the one pouring out the Spirit. And we look to Jesus to do that. We look to Jesus to apply the Spirit to bring forgiveness to us that we would know all the benefits of Christ. But as Peter announces this glorious promise, I want you also to see the expansive nature of the promise. This promise isn't limited to these particular hearers. You know, sometimes when you hear promises, like from cell phone companies, for say, uh, we'll give you a free phone, low monthly payments, and no contract. But then, who's it for? Only new customers. The promise is great if you're a new customer, but the promise isn't for you. you got to read the fine print. So to whom is Peter issuing the promise in the name of Christ? Three groups of people. First, Peter says the promise is for you. The promise of the Spirit bringing the blessings in Christ is for you. It's to you Jews standing right here. Not just to those in Jerusalem who crucified Jesus. It's to all these Jews who are gathered. You all are within the reach of the Gospel. Paul will say, the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. There's grace for you Jews. Those who are here, those who are outside of Jerusalem, maybe you came to a feast, maybe you saw Jesus, but you paid Him no attention. The grace isn't limited to the 120 who are awakened with Christ, who didn't hate Jesus but followed Him. No, the grace is for all of you here who repent and believe. God hasn't forgot His former mercies. He promised the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would have a people. Promises for you, their descendants. But then the promises for a second group. For promises to you and to your children. Now, this is a striking statement, and one that I'm going to have to dig in on for a second, if you'll bear with me. Because right here, at a critical moment in the history of redemption, when the new covenant dawns and the last days have started, Peter affirms a line of covenant continuity, a line of sameness with how the Lord has worked. In the Old Covenant, the Lord extended His promises to believers and to their children. This language Peter's using here echoes Genesis 17, verse 7, what the Lord said to Abram, right before He changed His name to Abraham. I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter's not pulling these recipients out of the air. He's following the biblical pattern of God's covenant mercies. 
to you and to your children. And some of you are thinking, okay, so what? Children were part of the Old Covenant community. And as such, the boys anyway, received the sign of circumcision. Now that sign was just a sign. Circumcision of the flesh can't bring circumcision of the heart. And God will tell His people, you need to be circumcised in the heart. But the sign pointed to the God who initiates and saves. It's an outward sign of the need for inward cleansing. Just like baptism. Baptism doesn't guarantee salvation. Circumcision didn't guarantee salvation. But both circumcision, the Old Covenant, and baptism in the New Covenant say this, you are God's possession if you receive the promises signified and sealed by faith. But with circumcision, Abraham applied it to himself, that must have been interesting, and to his children. And then he commanded his children to keep the way of the Lord. So the covenant sign said to the recipient, you bear responsibility to walk with the Lord. You are not to presume on God's grace who brought you into the covenant. You're to respond to this God with love and loyalty. But there's a real promise of communion with God, of cleansing, of every spiritual blessing. Well now, right here as Peter conveys this promise, it's a better promise than the one in the Old Covenant. How so? We get a better cleansing. A better sacrifice. We get Jesus who washes us clean of every sin. We get the spirit of adoption. However, amidst the things that are different, a better prophet, priest, and king, deeper intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit, there is yet a line of continuity. God is still dealing with families. Peter is saying to the men gathered, the men, by the way, would be the ones who come to this feast, right? The men are commanded three times a year to show up. They're there. But he's telling them, this promise is for you and your family. Just as you submit to Christ, repenting, believing in Him, and receive God's promise, so the promise is to your children. Some of you are still thinking, I can see it on your face. So what? Here's the inherent logic that you need to understand. If children were the recipients of the promise in the Old Covenant, and on that basis received the sign of the covenant, then as recipients of the promise in the New Covenant, the children of believers should receive the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. What else would Peter mean when he intentionally echoes Genesis 17? Now, some of our Christian friends argue that children are not members of the New Covenant and therefore should not receive the sign of baptism. Why in the world then would Peter say the promise is for them? Using the same categories. If children are not members of, sorry, if children were members of the Old Covenant before Pentecost, but now they're not, they should no longer receive the covenant sign, then Peter would have some explaining to do. That's a huge change. And when we see transition from Old Covenant ideas to New Covenant ideas, And there's a change. You know what else there always is? An explanation. Peter would not need to use the language of Genesis 17 to you and to your children. He would need to say, no, things are different now and I need to tell you how. But things are not different in this way. 
The new covenant is indicating expansive blessings and it doesn't start by kicking all the children out of the church. The promise belongs to them. The covenant sign is theirs. But so too is the responsibility to repent. We have to be aware of making too much of the covenant. You don't get into the kingdom of God because your daddy's a believer. You must repent. But the promise is near to you. Repent and believe. Embrace the God who's covenanting with you by faith. And then there's a third category. For all who are far off. This also echoes the Old Testament. In Isaiah 57, the far off are the Gentiles whom the Lord our God will call. He will speak peace to them. They're outside the covenant. But somehow they'll be brought near. Paul will explain this. How by the blood of Jesus, the far off are brought near. No longer strangers. This also echoes language of Genesis 17. The Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham. He's the father of a multitude. And when he was to practice circumcision, upon whom did he place it? Again, himself and his children. But he was also supposed to put it on the foreigners in his house. God's purposes were never confined to only Israel and their children. The light of his salvation would go to the ends of the earth. He's going to graft others in. Well, Peter's indicating God's plan for the nations is coming to pass. The promise is not confined to one group. It will go to far off peoples. It will be the God here spoken of who saves His people. Do you notice how it says the promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself? So while the Gospel is preached in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, the Lord is calling His people to Himself. Salvation, friends, is of the Lord. Yes, we must respond and we must call upon the name of the Lord. We must repent and believe. But He calls us first. He speaks life into our darkened hearts. Just like Jesus said to dead Lazarus, come out. That's what He does to us. And we love Him because He first loved us. The point ultimately here, brethren, is the promise is going out through preaching. But the saving work is the Lord's. God is saving sinners through the proclamation of the Gospel. The Father is calling people in and God is using the weakness of preaching to gather a multitude. And you should read this with great joy in your heart because we are the far off. We are the far off. And what has our God done? He's had His Gospel come to us that we would be awakened with life. We don't deserve to be part of His covenant people, but He sought us out and He called us to Himself Think of it, to Gentile dogs, unclean people. The Lord has brought a cleansing to wash you and give you the deepest fellowship of the living God. Isn't that amazing? Are you amazed by the grace of the Lord? And then finally, see with me, briefly here, the salvation of souls. This is an addendum on the sermon. I want you to notice, kind of like I'm doing with you, verse 40, and with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. You can read the sermon in five minutes. It wasn't a five-minute sermon. With many other words, he kept exhorting them. Earnest appeals. He told them to repent. Repeatedly. He said, you're part of a crooked generation. That's a quote of Deuteronomy 32. You're a crooked generation if you rebel against the Lord, as Israel did of old. If you maintain a posture of unbelief, then you're going to perish. 
There's urgency. You need to respond. Save yourselves, he said. That's really not a, the best translation. Y'all be saved, is what he says. The verb is passive. Be saved. You can't save yourself. Be saved. What, what's the idea? You need God's intervention and you need to see it. This is not a co-op pro program with you and God. God is not your co-pilot. Get that bumper sticker off all bumpers. If you see it, I'm not telling you to ram someone, but maybe you should stop and explain. That is not the truth. No, the Lord is the one who brings salvation. The Lord is exercising here. He saves. But you must cry to Him to save your soul. Because He saves through a, an instrument, the, the gift of faith. And Peter wants him to understand the Lord as He calls you to Himself, the Lord as He's appealing to you in the midst of a crooked generation, He's calling you to a new life. You don't cease to be Jews, but you can't be characterized by your present Jewishness, which is crooked. We also need God to intervene in our crookedness. Paul's going to use the same language when he writes to the Gentiles at Philippi. I prayed it this morning on purpose that we would shine as lights amidst a crooked and perverse generation. He's using the same, the same language. God must pluck us as brands from the burning and we must devote our lives to the Lord. Brethren, you will never see your need for Jesus if you entertain a rosy picture of this world. You will never cry to Christ for grace if you think this generation is great. You must see its vileness and run to our God. And then we get the closing report and encouragement. So those who received His Word, verse 41, were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 to church membership. Now 3,000 is a big number in one sense, but it's a small number in view of the totality of people who would have been in Jerusalem at the feast. Estimates are something like 200,000 people would come to feasts like this. So think of it this way, 1.5% of the people who have come to the feast respond. But what happens to the church? It grows from 120 people to 3,000 more in a day. Three years Jesus spent preaching and a measly 120 people have been saved. One day the Apostle Peter preaches and 3,000 more come in. The church is multiplied 25 times over. What's the significance of that? Jesus is Lord and He's exercising His crown rights and He is subduing a people to Himself. What did He promise He would do? I will build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, here's the proof, brethren. He's building His church, and He hasn't stopped. Let us not lose courage in the power of King Jesus through the weak means of the gospel to save sinners and draw people to Himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises that are fulfilled in Christ. We thank You for the reign of Jesus over all. And Lord, we pray that we would be found repenting and believing in the King of Kings. Lord, we think this morning of those we love and know who don't know Christ. And we pray for them, that You would awaken them as well. That You would bring them into contact with the proclaimed Word. And You would save sinners as Christ and His glory is proclaimed. Lord, hear us as we pray these things and cheer our souls in the salvation that's found in Jesus. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.
And all of God's people said, Amen.